I Read Comics, show number 53. Where were we? I think we were talking about comics. It's been a while, I know. I hope you guys have been enjoying the movie reviews. It is really the summer of comics movies, isn't it? And so far, so good. I still haven't seen the Transformers movie, although those of you who follow the blog will see that Logan saw the Transformers movie and had a very funny review. So I'm hoping I get to see it eventually. And then there's the Simpsons movie, which is coming out at the end of this month, which is July, which I'm pretty excited about, too. And then there's the kids' movies, too, which I haven't even seen. I didn't get to see Surf's Up, the Penguin thing. And then Ratatouille is out right now, and I heard it was great. I still haven't seen that. Oh, so many movies, so little time. But this is a comic book review show, I think. And I will try to be coherent in it, although I'm thinking I'll just talk until I run out of words, which is very likely to happen. But first, let's talk about some really good stuff. And this is going to be as as positive a show as I can make it. i got one thing I want to complain about. Well, maybe two. But mostly it's going to be positive. But the good stuff, which I've been blogging about, is that um, three of my favorite independent artists have been having just wonderful, cool things happening. So first off, Carl Christian, who puts out Byron, Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know, had it picked up by Slave Labor, and it's out in a book. So very exciting. And I can't wait to get a copy of it, too. Uh, even though I have all of the independence, I really want to hold the book in my hands. And that's a wonderful thing. And if you haven't read Byron, you will like Byron. It is really, really good. So you should definitely go and buy it. I'll put the link up again uh, so that you can see some of the panels because a lot of it has been reproduced online, but then to order the book. Also, Matt Salady, who does the Homeless Channel, had his thing published as a book, which is also incredibly cool, and I heard there was a very good party for it at Isotope in San Francisco, which sadly I missed, but that being out as a book is also great, and he's gotten some really great press for that as well, so yay him. And then lastly, Chris Wisnia, who is the writer, publisher, artist for Dr. DeBunko, got interviewed on one of my favorite skeptical podcasts that's called Point of Inquiry, or as they say it, Point of Inquiry. And he was a great interview, as I knew he would be, having been on Skepticality, and got to talk about all kinds of things having to do with comics and skepticalness and where he's going to go with Dr. DeBunko, which was just wonderful to hear. So I was so happy to, to hear him get that press, because I think he's gotten quite a bit of um, press going in comic circles, but not so much in skeptical circles. And I, I think it's really important for skeptics to know about what I think is one of the only skeptical comic books that there is. And also, Chris just sent me, and literally this came yesterday, um, the new Doris Danger book, which is called Doris Danger Seeks Where Urban Creatures Creep and Stomp. And it's another Kirby homage type deal. And the writing in these books is just so very, very funny. And the art is great. And it always has all of this extra stuff. It has the fake letters and the fake editorials. And the big, the big bonus at the end is that it has pinups, monster pinups, by people like Dick Ayers and John Severin and Dave Gibbons and J.H. Williams and Al Feldstein and Arthur Adams and blah, blah, blah. The list goes on and on. It is great. And it's in a really cool size. I'm just trying to figure out. It's almost 8.5 by 11, but not quite. Um, I think it's... No, no. It's more like 8.5 by... 12. It's not quite legal size, but it, it is a, a really nice book to have and, of course, funny as hell. So I encourage you to get the new Doris Danger. It was also really nice to get it in an envelope that Chris had sort of personalized to me and drawn a little monster on the back. So I'm going to have to scan that in and put that up because I just thought it was so cool. And before I get to the actual comics, I wanted to talk a little bit about an art exhibition that I went to see in San Francisco. So those of you who live around the Bay Area have probably seen commercials for this. It's at the Asian Art Museum, and it's called Tezuka, the Marvel of Manga. And it's there through September 9th, so if you haven't seen it yet, I encourage you to go. It's really good. And it's devoted to the life and career of um, Tezuka Osamu, who was the guy who... <laughs> well, I'll, I'll read you what it says because it's really good. This is on the uh, postcard that I took. Tezuka, the marvel of manga, um, 150,000 pages of manga, 70 anime productions, one visionary, Osamu Tezuka. 
Regarded in Japan as the god of comics and animation, Osamu Tezuka is an icon in a world of manga and revered as an artistic master. This major exhibition, the first of its kind outside Japan, features more than 200 original drawings, paintings, and more. See the art that started an international phenomenon and discover why manga is more than just your Sunday funny pages. You can see a lot of this online at marvelofmanga.org and it gives you a feel for what's actually in the exhibition but it's really good to go actually see the stuff in person and I didn't really know much about Tezuka even though I knew who Astro Boy was I never read it or saw any of the movies I did watch a lot of Kimba the White Lion growing up on TV and um, of course in Japan apparently it was called Jungle Emperor but I remember it really really well and I have the theme song stuck in my head you know I should try to find it that's what I'll do. I'll try to end this show with the theme from Kimba the White Lion. And clearly, you know, I remember when Lion King came out, I was like, hmm, Kimba, Simba, there's something going on here. The stories are really, really similar. And there's some stuff going on between the two companies about that still, I think. And I knew nothing about any of these other books that he had done. So I just missed this whole thing. And, and I think it was just because where I grew up, we didn't have any manga. Like, I didn't even know about it. The only stuff I knew about Japanese cartoons was Kimba and Speed Racer, pretty much. And that was, oh, and and, um, Gigantor. That was the other one that I knew about. But that was pretty much it. So I kind of missed out on this whole thing. The exhibition is great. It's chronological, and it takes you through his earliest stuff, through the stuff that he was doing just before he died. And it reproduces brilliant pages of his original art. And it's always a treat to see original art, um, just to see the artist's hand at work and see what was drawn in by hand and what was done with cutting with, you know, I don't know, scissors or, or a knife, and what was whited out and what was fixed and what was rotated and how they put in the word balloons and things like that. It's just so cool to see the actual original pages that he worked on, some of them going back many, many years. So that was awesome. And getting to read about all the different characters that he created, and he clearly has themes that appear over and over again in his books, including the bees. And I don't really understand what the thing is about the bees, but in several of the stories that I looked at, there were bees attacking people. I don't know why the bees, but bees. There are also themes that you see in lots of other Japanese manga, where it's the the lone guy who is thought by people to be a bad guy, but he's really a good guy, or he has some weird physical disfigurement. So I think that's more of a, a theme in Japanese manga for sure. There's one called, there's one series that he did called Blackjack, which is about a surgeon who has a big scar on his face. And that's kind of one of those only in Japan things where you could have this, this manga series about a surgeon, and it's really graphic. There are whole panels of him amputating people's arms, and it's drawn very, very realistically like medical school texts, which kind of grossed me out. And then there are just other things that are totally wacky, like this one called Metropolis. And it has nothing to do with Fritz Lang's Metropolis aside from the title and really the conception that this was going to be the city of the future. And it looked so interesting to me that I bought a copy of it and read through it pretty quickly. I need to go back and read it more thoroughly. But man, it is so cool and weird. And it's done in a style that's very reminiscent. Clearly, he was influenced by American cartoons of the 30s and 40s, because that's what it looks like. Looks like a really old Warner Brothers cartoon or an old Disney cartoon where the characters are kind of round and squat. And of course, it's in black and white. And the cities are just like bizarre, then futuristic shapes. And um, like Astro Boy, it's about a robot, and the robot is doesn't know it's a robot and spends most of the book um, not knowing it, and then once the robot finds out it's a robot and, do- and realizes it doesn't have parents, it goes a little nuts, and there's a very strange resolution at the end. The interesting thing about the robot is that it's a gender-switching robot, and it has a switch at the back of the throat. Now, when I read that... I was reading it because the description is right there next to the art, and it says that the robot has a switch at the back of the throat that causes it to switch gender, and I thought, that must be a mistranslation. They must mean at the back of the neck, right? Like data. And then I got the book, and I read it, and no, it is at the back of the throat. So in order for someone to change the robot's gender, they have to jam their fist into their mouth and flip the switch at the back of the throat. What is that about? I don't know, but it is pretty cool. There are a whole bunch of other books um, that get covered in this exhibition. And there is also, if if you go to it, um, there's also an anime retrospective that's being shown in one of the other rooms. And I watched some of that. And that was really cool, too. Um, And 
in Japan, there were um, Tezuka movies every summer. That was the big event that people waited for was a new movie. And they showed some clips from him and they just look totally wild and out of this world. And clearly the creation of a guy with a vision. Not the kind of stuff that gets created by committee, but some somebody said, this is what I want it to be, and it, it, it is really amazing looking. So I'm definitely going to seek out more of this stuff. There's um, one other book that really got me excited that I want to try to find, and it's called, um, well, the Japanese title, I think, is Eulogy for uh, Kirihito, but then I found out that the English one is called Ode to Kirihito, and I saw it in, in the Kinokuniya store in San Francisco and didn't realize it was the same one, but... The theme of that is that it's some sort of future where people get a virus that turns them into dogs and then they end up being outcasts and the main character is a dog who he's a dog man who has to try to right wrongs and prevent other people from being subjected to horrible laboratory experiments. This captivates me. The idea of people being turned into dogs and the art is pretty amazing for that. So I'm I'm going to get the dog book and when I read it I will definitely report on that. Um, there are lots of other really dark dystopian themes in many of the printed works that he did, which I don't think are in the anime, which are much more kid-focused. Like, Kimba the White Lion is not, you know, dystopian, although it has some serious themes in it. But a, a lot of his adult stuff is really dark, but in a good way, you know, not um, gratuitously so. And there are just crazy things, like there's one about a demon horse, and I don't think I've ever read a story about a demon horse. And that whole concept is pretty fucking cool. So see the exhibition if you can. And if you haven't read any of his stuff, um, you should seek it out. It looks like the English translation stuff is just starting to get published here. It doesn't look like there was a lot of English translation. Or if there were, they just weren't widely available. But there's a lot more stuff coming on the market right now. So I highly recommend it, and apologies for probably doing a bad job with the Japanese pronunciation. But yeah, Tezuka, very, very cool. Let's see, you know what, I think I'm going to get the one thing I want to complain about a lot just out of the way so that I can be very positive for the rest of this, so let me get it. Why do I do this to myself? I go to the library and I look at the graphic novels and I go, oh, you know, I should read this just to read it. So I got out the first paperback of the Ultimates, this Ultimate Superhuman Volume 1. So I had reviewed the second one, which was uh, Homeland Security, but I had just skipped the first one. So I read it, and you know what? It's pretty sucky. Um, let me point out just a couple of things. You know, again, I understand the concept of the Ultimates is to be more adult, but the decompression drives me fucking nuts because it just takes forever to get anything done here, so I'm very annoyed with that. Um, the writing is just not that good. Mark Miller is not a writer that I can really like. And I also want to know if there are not editors anymore who catch really basic mistakes. So there's one scene where, um, so, okay, the Ultimates, it's the Avengers. And this is the beginning of it where uh, they get Captain America out of cold storage and uh, Bruce Banner is trying to find the serum for the super soldier formula and cap coming back kind of solves his problem for him and he doesn't want to turn into the hulk anymore because it's a really bad thing and this is also where we get to see um hank pym beat up his wife which was really really good you know always good to have some spousal abuse in a comic book and you know there are some um naked scenes of hank pym which i'm all for that but he's so much of a dick i don't even care so here's some really quality writing for you from Mark Miller. Here's Nick Fury talking. He's telling Bruce Banner about the fact that they just found Captain America. And he says, I said, shut up and crack open that bottle of champagne you've been saving for the next season of Star Trek, Dr. Banner. The answer to your prayers has just been answered. And I'd like to know in what universe that line makes any sense at all. Is it like the answer to your prayers has been not answered or lost or questioned or something you know does does nobody read this sort of thing anymore oh and it's the the climactic part of that whole chapter it's the last page where you you know you're supposed to be on the edge of your seat and they end it with something that's so bad now the other thing i don't get this and maybe it's some not american phrase that i don't understand but i kind of think it's not and it's just a really bad use of english so let me read this uh 
this is supposed to be an interview between Larry King and our good friend Tony Stark. And so Larry King says to him, um, he's asking why Stark Industries is uh, supporting the whole Ultimates concept. And he says, what about the ac- this accusation that the idea of a supervillain threat was only stirred up by your media interests and now you're just creaming off all the big government contracts? Creaming off? I think he means skimming, like skimming the cream off of government contracts. I don't get creaming off. In fact, it sounds really obscene to me, um, and I wonder why it's in a comic book. So that was really very strange. Um, so aside from those two really bad uses of English, what were some of the other things that, that annoyed me? Well, there's the whole scene where Captain America wakes up in now the future, 50 years later or whatever, and he goes back to see Bucky, who married Gail, his old girlfriend, and, um, you know, he's been, everybody thought he was dead and he's back and Bucky's really happy and, and all, you know, emotional to see him. But of course, Gail doesn't want to see him because she's old and she calls down from the top of the stairs. You don't want to see me like this because the worst thing in the world for a woman is to look old. Absolutely. A guy who was in love with you, you know, he sees you and you're old. Obviously, that's going to just make him go mental to see you as an old woman because why did he love you in the first place? Not because you had a good personality or because you were smart or funny or anything. It was because of the way you looked. And once you lose that life is over. So that was very, very annoying. And then what's the deal with Banner when he turns into Hulk making all these inferences to raping Betty? I mean, I don't think that's really appropriate. And Maybe this is something about the Ultimate Hulk that they've been playing up all along, but I was a little shocked to find that in here, that he's actually saying he's going to find her and rape her. I mean, basically, that's what he says, although he doesn't say the word rape. It's very clearly implied. So that's a little disturbing, because I just don't think that that's that's not right. And you know what? If they hadn't tranquilized him, he would have done it, and would we have seen that in the comic book? I hope not, because that just seems... Not not right to me. Um, a couple of funny things that I noticed was that Thor in here, who's portrayed as kind of the crazy long-haired Greenpeace guy, um, doesn't use contractions when he talks. So I guess that's supposed to indicate that he really is a god because maybe gods don't use contractions. Um, and then there was another scene that I didn't really understand where Tony Stark invites um, no-contraction Thor and Captain America to have dinner with him, and Jarvis is there. And uh, I could swear that Jarvis is coming on to Captain America. You know, Tony Stark says to him, You know, you're wasting your time, Jarvis. Do you seriously think Captain America and Thor have even noticed that preposterous new waistcoat of yours? And while Jarvis is pouring wine for for, uh, Cap, he says, Give it time, young sir. Give it time. I'm feeling jolly lucky this evening, you know. So what? He's gay and he comes on to superheroes? I don't remember that being in the original Avengers, but maybe that's in the new one. And then, you know, the whole domestic abuse thing. I just don't need to see that in a comic book. There's too much of it in real life, and I kind of don't want it intruding on um, my superhero comics. So that's about that. So yeah, I have to say, I, I think I'm going to have to slap myself around the next time I go to the library and not pick up any more Ultimates. No Ultimate Spider-Man, no Ultimate Four, Fantastic Four, no Ultimates. Just stop with the Ultimates. It's not for me. It's really bad. So rather than end this with a downer, I do want to say that um, I am well and truly in the grip of Pokemon comic books now. I don't know how this happened. It happened without me knowing it. But last week, I spent all this money on eBay, and I bought um, Pokemon comic books that are Pikachu-oriented from a really nice guy who was selling them um, because his kids were grown up and he didn't want them anymore. So that was awesome. And then I bought a whole bunch of Pokemon manga from this company in Singapore, and it cost me an arm and a leg to get it shipped here. But now I have all these books, and they're really pretty funny, I have to say. So I don't know why this is, like, my obsession now, but it really is, so... All I can say is, um, before you buy any Pokemon manga, talk to me about it first, and, and I'll tell you whether the books are worth buying or not. So that that's my, my happy thing, but it's sort of a confession at the same time. Uh, yes, I buy Pokemon manga books from Singapore because I can't get them in the United States, even at the Kinokuniya store. So let me take a break with a little bit of Muzak, and then I will talk about some good indie books that I've been reading. 
Okay, let's do some indie stuff. These were books that were really kindly given to me, of course, by David Arroyo, the source of, of all good stuff. And I wanted to also say that I'm trying to read more indie stuff because I think it's a really good idea and because, of course, a lot of the big two stuff is just so crappy. So I'm making an effort to do it. I think this is a good step in the right direction. So first one I'm going to talk about is a book called 12 Reasons Why I Love Her by Jamie S. Rich and Joelle Jones. And it is published by Oni Press. And I like Oni Press. They publish a lot of good stuff. And this is a, a manga-sized book that came out in... Hold on, let me check. 2006. I don't know either of these two people who wrote it, um, although they have done other things. And uh, this is a relationship book, so I want to divide this review into two sections. One is the objective stuff, and then there's the personal reaction, because they're a bit different. So the objective stuff is that this is a really neat little book. I, I really like the art. It's a bit cartoony, but not unrealistically so. Um, there's a really nice use of light and dark. It's all black and white and interesting use of perspective on the panels. It's not just four panels on every page. There's some pages that are um, just one big panel and then others where it's divided up without lines and then just all kinds of really interesting techniques that are used here. Um, the two people that the story revolves around are Evan and Gwen. And the sequence in the book goes um, not chronologically, so we bounce around in their relationship. Um, we see how they meet, but that comes at the very end of the book. We see dates that they've had in their relationship. We see problems that they have in their relationship, and um, you're not really sure what happens at the end, whether they stay together or not. It seems like they probably will, but it's, it's a nice way of encapsulating the dramatic and maybe not so dramatic moments, plus some reflections about the the girl in particular, Gwen. And it's mostly told from the point of view of Evan. So I, I really wish there had been a little more about Gwen in here because we only see her through his eyes and I, I don't get a lot of her character. He seems pretty, um, not transparent, but you understand him very easily. She's a lot quirkier. Um, that's one of the reasons, I think, one of the 12 reasons why Evan loves her is that she's... Um, able to liable to say and do very unusual things and pick fights with old ladies on the street and break the rules and just not be what he's expecting which is why he cares about her and he on the other hand seems like pretty much a typical guy there wasn't much about him that surprised me um we don't really find out much about him at all other than that he's a teacher and i don't get much about his background or what his plans are in life or anything like that um so he just seems kind of a standard issue guy. She is a much more interesting character. But again, we only see her really through his eyes. And his reaction to some of the problems that they have in their relationship, to me, seems very st stereotypical guy-like. He just kind of gets pissed off and doesn't want to talk about it and stomps away. So. <laughs> um, but I, I really like it. I think it... It's not overwritten and it's not underwritten. Uh, given that it's really a relationship story, the decompression stuff doesn't really matter. It's not like there's a plot and we have to get through it and find out who done it or at the end. I, I think it proceeds at a really nice pace. And there's some really beautiful art in it, which I like very much. So I think that this is an interesting little book. And if you like relationship stories, you will probably like this one. So that is my objective review. My personal reaction to it is that... It didn't interest me, and partly that's because I'm really not interested in reading stories about white people's bad relationships. It's not interesting. It's the same reason why I can't stand romantic comedies, because it's just people, and it's usually white people, just whining about their relationships and stumbling through it, and, you know, it's it just doesn't interest me. Um, the other thing that bothered me, bothered me, again, this is my personal reaction, is that as I said, Evan is kind of a standard-issue white guy, and Gwen is um, short and thin and gorgeous and blonde and is a fashion designer and doesn't really seem to have many problems going on in her life. And for that reason, and, and this is my reaction, I'm just not that interested in her because she doesn't have any problems. Um, she had a crappy childhood with too much religion in it, but basically she has no problems in her life because she's short and thin and blonde and beautiful and she's a fashion designer. 
it doesn't really get much better than that for the typical woman living in society. So I found it very hard to identify with her and identifying with her and liking her character was sort of in spite of all that. I liked a lot of the things she has to say and she's given a lot of time to talk about her childhood and her beliefs and she gets into this really funny argument with a woman on the street who's trying to proselytize to her, which I thought was great too. But it it just, because she's drawn portrayed so stereotypically it's very hard for me to get over that and that's my personal reaction so I just have to put that out there and say that objectively I know that's not a fair thing to say but personally that was my take on it so um yeah I I don't go to see romantic comedies um unless they're made by non-white people and in fact I did see a really funny one uh, several years ago called Sprung which was made by black people and I thought it was great But yeah, I I won't see any romantic comedies featuring white people that were made after pretty much 1964 because I just think they're awful. Um, So so that was my reaction to that book. The next book is called Love as a Foreign Language, Volume 1. And it's by Jay Torres and Eric Kim. And this is another Oni Press publication. And it's called, oh, I didn't even notice this at the bottom. It says Comedy Romance. Oh, okay. Was the other book Comedy Romance? Let's see. What does it say? No. That's the wrong book. (laughs) Um, I don't know if it's Comedy Romance because I can't find it. Oh, there it is. I'm sitting on my couch and I can't find anything. Uh, Older Audiences. That's 12 Reasons Why I Love Her. Okay. So this one's Comedy Romance. (laughs) This story is about a guy named Joel who's teaching English in Korea. And... uh, So, let's see. Yeah, I guess I'll do the objective versus the personal thing. I think the concept is really interesting. Uh, There seem to be a lot of books these days coming out around people, white people teaching English in Japan or Korea or some other place. That's kind of a a trend or a theme, perhaps. Even a motif. Um, Or a meme. I don't know. It could be any of those things. Um, So, this is about... Joel, who's a standard-issue white guy, he goes to Korea because he wants to earn some money, and he doesn't really know what else he wants to do. And a lot of the book is about his issues getting along in Korea, which is just a very different place for him. And he doesn't really speak much Korean. Um, He's bored by his job. He doesn't have a lot of friends. He doesn't really dig the way he has to live because he doesn't have much money, so he doesn't get to enjoy any of the good stuff. And um, at the end of the book, he's faced with the decision of whether he's going to go back to America or not. So I'll tell you in a minute what happens at the end. Um, Some of the stuff in here is really good. It really gives you a flavor for what it must be like to be a standard issue American person living in a very, very different place and having to get along with the different food and the different language and all that stuff. And, And I think anybody who's spent time abroad knows a little bit about that feeling and how tiring it is to be in a place that you don't know where people speak a different language. You know, even if you speak another language and you're, you're even somewhat fluent in it, it's really tiring to do that and not be able to converse in your native language. Imagine what it's like for immigrants. Um, and, to have to just negotiate your way around where you don't get any of the cultural stuff and the TV shows don't make any sense to you and um, you don't like your job and there isn't really anything keeping you there. So I felt like that was conveyed really well. Um, It's black and white, of course. The art is a little more cartoony, um, a little more exaggerated. It's not really manga-ish, but there's definitely, uh, it's more stylized. And yeah, now that I'm looking at it, there is some manga stuff in here. So it, it, it's like that, although it's not excessively so. The characters don't have giant, huge eyes and really overdrawn hair. Um, Joel has an ongoing battle with a cockroach that lives in his little apartment, which I felt went on just a little bit too long. Like, okay, I get it. He doesn't like cockroaches. It doesn't have to happen in every chapter. And uh, some of the conversations he has with his friends are funny. The thing that, that I loved the most about this was um, the scenes where they show him teaching. And for me, having taught quite a bit in graduate school, this rang really, really true to me. So uh, just as an example, he's teaching English to his class. And um, kids come in. He teaches several classes in an evening, like four or five. So come in. He says, hello, class. How's everyone doing this evening? Today's conversation topic is favorite animal. Pick a partner and begin by asking each other, what's your favorite animal? Explain why to your partner using lots of good descriptive adjectives. Then we'll share answers with the class and discuss some more. 
So the class goes to work, and he writes all these words down on the board. And at the end of class, he says, good job, everyone. See you tomorrow. And then he does it again, and then he does it again, and then he does it again. And by the end of the night, he's just sitting in front of the board, and he says, what's your favorite animal? Partners. Discuss. Go. (laughs) And he's so bored by it, and he's just falling asleep in class. And I know that feeling really, really well. By the, the fourth or fifth time you're teaching the same thing, it's like you just can't even summon up the energy to do it. So I love that. I thought that was wonderful. And I wish there had been a little bit more of that sort of thing in here. There are a few other scenes that focus on the teaching, but I, I wish that there had been more because I enjoyed that the most of anything. So um, objectively, I think it's a really interesting story. I haven't seen many comics about um, Korea or Korean people. And this was a nice, refreshing break. It's too bad that Joel, a white guy, happens to be the protagonist. And, you know, he's kind of annoying. He's here in a place where he doesn't want to be. And really, he spends the whole book complaining about it and keeps threatening that he's going to go back to America and kind of doesn't get around to doing anything about it. So I was annoyed by the fact that he was annoying and whiny. Shut up. If you're going to go home, just go home and stop complaining about it. Now, this is volume one. Um, I'm probably not going to pick up the other volumes because I wasn't really interested enough in it. So here comes the personal part. Um, The reason that Joel ends up staying, we think, at the end of this book is because he meets a pretty girl. (laughs) And again, it's like a romantic comedy. He, He meets cute with her in the noodle shop where he gets his food, where she happens to translate something. And he immediately is smitten by her because she's so beautiful. And then it turns out on the very last page of the book that she's the new secretary that gets hired at the school where he teaches English. And that's the very last panel. And he's immediately smitten by her again. And she's so beautiful. In fact, the way she's drawn is very manga-esque, where she's standing by herself and she's surrounded by a glowing bright light, like she's coming from heaven. And it's a romantic comedy, and I don't care, (laughs) even though one of the people isn't white. (laughs) You know, if he's going to stay in Korea, he should stay in Korea because he wants to, not because he sees this beautiful woman and is immediately smitten by her and that becomes his whole deal. You know, he doesn't know anything about her. He doesn't know what kind of person she is. She's beautiful. Oh, that's a really good reason. She kind of looks like she could be a white person. She dresses kind of sexy and has these cute little glasses that sit at the end of her non-existent nose. Oh, you know... So that's my personal reaction to it. I'm tired of romantic comedies, and that's one of them. And please don't make any assumptions about my personal life based on the fact that I hate romantic comedies. <laughs> please. Because that's like one of those feminist, anti-feminist tactics that always get used, which has been leveled against me and other people. Oh, you don't want to see beautiful women in comics because you're fat and ugly. You know, you don't want to see romantic stuff because you can't get laid or, or you know you can't find a boyfriend or I don't know, whatever. Don't do that. It's, it's a stupid way of arguing. Okay. Before I get to the last book, uh, let me just say cartoon network continues to rule. It's summer now. So they're showing a lot of stuff, uh, showing more Pokemon. And in fact, last Saturday, I think they showed about four Pokemon movies in a row. And I watched them and I can't say I'd really recommend that to anybody because I was going a little nuts by the end of the day. Um, They also, on 4th of July, showed a ton of Fosters, which was awesomely awesome. Um, And they continue to show new episodes of things like Class of 3000 and Camp Laszlo and other stuff that I just watch a little too much of. And uh, there is that new Pokemon series called Diamond and Pearl. There is a new thing on that I don't like. Believe it or not, I found something I don't like. uh, That's called Stormhawks. And the animation is really annoying. I just cannot get into it because it bothers me so much to try and watch it. So anyway, uh, just wanted to put in the old plug for Cartoon Network. Oh, and I should do the regular commercial stuff at this time. Um, Go buy everything that you can at Comic Relief, the only comic book store that matters on Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. Last time I was there, I spent about 100 bucks, and I probably have time to go back and buy more stuff there. And also, um, the regular music, not the Kimba the White Lion theme, um, is by Ginger Mayerson, of course. And it's always nice when people send notes in saying how much they love that music, because it is incredibly beautiful music, and I feel so lucky to have it on this show. Um, There's some other stuff that's been happening, including some other new podcasts by women, which are just totally fucking awesome, but I haven't had time to listen and analyze, so I'll talk about them next time around. Um, And 
the blogosphere continues to rock with women talking about comics all the time. So definitely don't forget to check out um, When Fangirls Attack, a.k.a. womeninincomics.blogspot.com. Um, girlwonder.org just now has a blog in addition to the forums. So um, definitely check that out, too. I mean, it literally just started, I think, today. So there's not much there, but there will be pretty soon. And there just continues to be a great level of discussion. There's also a new organization called Power in Comics, Power being an acronym, um, which I joined up with, which is more of a uh, action group. So it's taking on some initiatives to um, contact media and do some other things rather than um, discussion. Well, there is discussion, but it's also kind of a call to action the way... uh, I don't know if any of you remember, I'm too old now, the Women's Action Coalition, WAC, which I was a part of in the 90s, which was devoted to protesting things that were demeaning to women. In fact, WAC was the group that did pickets outside the Basic Instinct movie and carried signs that said Catherine did it. And I didn't actually get to do that protest, but I did some others, and it was pretty cool. So um, go check out Power in Comics, and I will put the links to all these things up at the blog so you can see what they be. So, um, the last thing is something that I mentioned before, and I actually put up a scan of this at the blog. It's the um, second of the Project X books from Digital Manga, which um, Rachel kindly sent me this one and and the third book, because I'm having a hard time finding them in stores. Even at Comic Relief, they didn't have these two. They only had the other one that I bought, the 7-Eleven one. So I was just thrilled to get this. And um, I remember reading about it over on... um, uh, the invincible Chris's invincible super blog where he talked about how awesome it was and oh my god it was just as good it was better than I could have imagined it being I am so in love with these books you know I, I kind of felt like um, Chris's review at, at the ISB was definitely um, sincere but I, I felt like he he skimmed over some of the stuff that I really found fascinating about this and I have to say the worst part about it is that it's got me eating cup noodle again, which I used to have in college like everybody else did. And after reading this whole book about how they make it and all the ingredients they put in, I was like, damn, I need to go get some of this stuff. And now I eat it and I like it and it's so cheap. And I know it's really bad for you because it's full of oil and stuff, but what the fuck? I just have it once a week or something. So yeah, now hooked on cup noodle. That's good. So anyway, thank you, Rachel at Digital Manga, for sending me the books. I'm actually putting off reading the third book, the the, um, the Nissan one, because I'm then there'll be no more books, and what am I going to do then? So uh, I'm like a proselytizer for these books. I go around telling everybody how much I fucking love Project X Cup Noodle and how awesome it is, because it is. So Logan and I talked about the other book, a 7-Eleven book. Just to recap, in case you missed that, uh, there is a documentary series in Japan, which is called Project X, and it's about um, successful businesses and technologies. And um, it's three of these stories were adapted into books, um, the one being the story of how 7-Eleven was introduced into Japan. This is how Cup Noodle was invented. And the third one is about uh, the car company, Nissan. So uh, the cover of this says project x challengers cup noodle the miracle of 8.2 billion served the magic noodle nisin cup noodle that's the whole title that i just read for you right there so like other manga it's read um from right to left as you would expect it to be uh and it has the japanese sound effects and some signs and stuff in it but the rest of it's all in english and um, unlike the 7-Eleven book, I don't think there are any actual photographs of the guys in here, except maybe right at the very end. Yeah, there's a couple of them. Um, so you get to see sort of um, what the real people look like as opposed to their cartoon versions. And of course, the cartoon versions are always much more handsome and dynamic. And there's a whole section at the end about how, like the secret of Cup Noodle, they do a little cutaway. They show you how it's made, and then they show you all these different flavors of it um, through the course of history and then there's a timeline at the end and uh, I found out that there's a cup noodle museum in Japan where you can go and actually see the stuff being made and kind of do the whole history of it and then you can order your own custom made cup noodle and it comes out in the styrofoam cup with the shrink wrap and everything which is something I'm going to have to do if I ever go to Japan because that just sounds so incredible. Can you imagine your own personalized cup noodle? Amazing. And it doesn't even cost that much. Okay. So the story of cup noodle, um, in a way it, it's, I'm, I'm wondering if all these books are like this, but it, it's very, um, 
to to a Westerner, it's so different from the way Western business is done. And the Seven Eleven book was the story of these two guys who were the R and G directors for this large grocery chain, and they were tasked with inventing something new. So they found the Seven Eleven concept and basically devoted their whole lives to making it successful in Japan. So the Project X story is about this one guy,、um, Momofuku Ando, who's the president of Nissin Foods,、um, successful in the development of the world's first instant ramen noodle, Top Ramen, for those of you who eat it. He is called the father of ramen, and you know he recently just passed away. As fierce, excuse me, as fierce industry competition develops with the widespread release of the instant noodle, he orders the development of the ultimate instant noodle project. So he had gotten his start post World War II,、um, making instant ramen, like the top ramen kind, where you just put it in water for like three minutes and、uh, you have a bowl full of noodles.、Um, and he wanted something more, something better, something different, because he could see that times were changing, and he really wanted a product that would basically kick everybody's butt and be something that people hadn't ever seen before. So this was invented in the early 70s. So it was invented in 1971. And he had this big factory, and he had a lot of money. And he basically calls these guys into his office and says, "Invent this! I want you to invent this because I want this to happen." And at every step of the way, there are incredible challenges that have to be overcome. And the guys he has working under it, his team of four guys.、Uh, They keep running into all these problems in the manufacturing and finding the right shrimp and the right cup and all the rest of it. And they come back to him and they keep saying, "This is really hard." And he goes, "I know it's really hard. You're the best guys. That's why I put you on the job. And if you can't do it, I'll find somebody who will." And he always makes suggestions along the way that that help them. So he is a man with a vision, and he just won't take no for an answer. And he. Is so confident about what this will be.、Um, he, he says to them, he wants an instant ramen in a container that can be eaten anywhere, anytime. It will definitely be a hit. No food so convenient, no food so indispensable. And on top of all that, if it tastes good too, there will be nothing more to say. And he just says, "Go and do it." So they have to do it.、Um, so it goes through. From the very beginning, they had to come up with the right design for the cup, and it has to be a cup that you can hold in your hand, and it has to be made out of the right material so it doesn't get too hot. It can't fall over when you put it down, and you know it, it has to have all these different aspects to it. It takes these guys like weeks and weeks and weeks to come up with just the right container in just the right size. And as everybody keeps saying, this is a totally different concept from. Whatever people thought about noodles in Japan, putting it into a cup is this thing that nobody had ever thought of before. And people keep saying, "We've never seen this before." So just the cup itself was completely revolutionary. Then they had to find the right kind of noodles for it. Noodles that the way they make ramen noodles is they fry them in really hot oil, and then when you put them in water, they they hydrate very quickly. So they had to do that, but the water can't be boiling, right? And it has to be cooked in a very short amount of time. So they keep. Trying with the noodles and trying with the noodles and frying them up, and they keep coming out burned on the outside and raw on the inside, and it just goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And the poor guy, whose job it is to do the noodles,、um, Kunio Matsumoto, he he has to like make and taste noodles every fucking day. And the little side story is that he's just married and he goes home, and his poor wife makes him all this food that he can't eat because he's been eating these goddamn noodles all day, and she's very upset because he won't eat her food, and she doesn't quite know what to do. And it really struck me, you know, she doesn't even really know what he does for a living. She knows he works for this huge company and that he does something with the the noodles, but he never tells her. You know, he goes home and he sits at the table and. He, she puts out all this food, and he'll eat a little, and says, "Oh, it tastes great, but I'm sorry, I just can't eat anymore." And then he kind of goes and reads or watches TV, and she's left wondering why. Why won't he eat her food? She's just crazy that he won't eat. She thinks that you know he thinks she's a bad cook, and she's not. But she can't ask him, and he can't tell her. 
because that's just the way it is. And so she eventually ends up going to the factory to see him at work. She's doing a little investigative reporting. And the other guys are like, oh, yeah, your poor husband. He's cooking up these noodles and eating them all day long. Oh, you know, no wonder he can't eat anything at home. So she finally gets clued into that and tries to make very small amounts of very tasty things to at least get him to eat. And I think it says somewhere in here that he ends up losing like 20 pounds or something because that's all he could do. It was to just eat a little bit, having to taste these fucking noodles every day. So that that is amazing. And then finally, finally, they get the noodles right. And that was the panel that I had scanned at the very end where he says, It worked! It's cooked through to the center! It fried up cleanly! We did it! It finally fried up clean! Ah, finally, finally! And they're so happy. And the guy says, It finally resembles food! Oh... So then the next chapter, they talk about putting the ingredients because it can't just be noodles, right? It has to have toppings on it. So they have to do dried food. And um, the guy who's in charge of this, of doing the um, the garnish, um, Kazuo Onojin, um, decides everything has to be freeze-dried. And he can't find the equipment, so he makes it. He makes his own freeze-dryer amazing he just goes and buy all these ingredients he has to make the thing himself unbelievable and uh so he tries to make some stuff and he keeps going back to the boss and the boss is like you're not a very good cook this tastes like shit he doesn't actually say that but he implies it so the boss guy goes to the kitchens and he cooks up some stuff himself and he says this is what it's supposed to taste like do this totally involved in it and uh the big thing is finding the shrimp because it's very important that the shrimp be red because it's lucky and people respect red shrimp it means it's good tasting and it's it's kind of luxurious too so he has to like investigate every kind of shrimp there are in the entire world (laughs) before he finds the red shrimp that will freeze dry correctly and the first times that they're doing this since the factory where they're going to make this stuff is far away, this poor guy has to cook up all this stuff in the kitchen, pack it in dry ice in his car, and drive to the factory where the the noodles are being made. And he does this for, like, weeks and weeks because it's all they can do. Unbelievable. The commitment that these guys show is just amazing. And to see them be so obsessed with it, the way their boss is obsessed with it, that they have to get this done, and they're going to do anything to get it right, is just so cool. And then... It's a great story because you see the reward at the end where they finally make the stuff and they go out onto uh, the Ginza, which is the big pedestrian um, walk area, and they're just giving it away to people and going, come on, taste this stuff, taste this stuff, it's really good. And that's how they get traction is by just letting people taste it and see how easy it is to make. And then it becomes a huge success and uh, they end up uh, giving away 20,000 of them in just four hours, 20,000 servings of this thing. And that was how it got started. And the best panel here is when it's everybody says, it's finally a success. We did it. And the guy says, now our salaries will increase. And the other guy says, we're drinking tonight. So all of that is awesome. And they tell you a little bit at the end that they have um, the, the factory where it's made, that they have thousands and thousands and thousands of servings that are um, kind of perpetually in storage in case of national emergencies because it's a food that can be transported. It's very light. Um, it's preserved basically forever. Um, and it's what they have in times of earthquake or, or tsunamis or things like that, which I didn't really know. So I can you tell how much I love this book? I love this book. I wanted it to go on forever. <laughs> it is great. And again, I don't understand why uh, American companies are not doing this, are not turning these incredible success stories into these gripping, dramatic epics, these sagas of how business succeeds and how business gets done. And I'm sure that you could find the same kind of stories in American business too, you know. There used to be Horatio Alger stories, which were not manga, but they were written down little tales of people who succeeded through hard work and luck and all that stuff. And I don't see why you couldn't have those again. There are enough entrepreneurs or even, not even entrepreneurs, but strong-willed business people who had a vision, who had an idea, and they worked like hell to make it happen. And that's what this is about. So I absolutely think there should be more of these things, and I love it. So... The last one is the Nissan book, and uh, I guess I'm going to have to, you know, read it and hope that there are going to be more that get translated after it. But these books are so 
as Will Wheaton would say, awesomely awesome. So I think that's going to wrap it up for this show because my voice is starting to go because I haven't talked very much about comics in a long time. But I'm reading a bunch of other stuff that I hope to get around to reviewing really, really, really soon. Um, including Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane, which I'm really digging, and I need to go back and reread it a little more carefully. And I think sometime soon I'm going to do a, a special kind of all sciencey show where I talk about, again, things like Bully Pulpit, which I loved, and Five Fists of Science, which is really cool, and maybe a little bit more about Dr. DeBunko, and kind of um, look at how science in comic books can be really cool. You know, somebody on Scans Daily had put up a couple of panels of... Uh, Adam and Jamie from Mythbusters who got incorporated into a comic book. And wouldn't that be cool? A Mythbusters comic book? I would love that. I think that would make a pretty awesome comic book. Really, really very cool. So uh, I guess that's going to be it for now. Um, Hopefully you'll be seeing a crossover between me and David Arroyo coming up pretty soon. Oh, and I did do um, with Logan a special thing for the um, comics podcast crossover that Bruce Rosenberger does. And we got to talk about what we'd like to see in a superhero movie. Um, I'll give it away right now. It will be no surprise to you that Logan wants to see a Green Lantern movie. And I want to see a Legion of the Superheroes movie. And if you pop over to Bruce's site, you can listen to that and see what everybody else had to say, too. It was really fun to do that. And I I really dig the comics podcast crossovers. And um, I will now put in at long last in in the show a plug for the Comics Podcast Network, of which I am a part and hopefully is going to be doing some fun stuff coming up soon. So in the meantime, go out and eat a lot of cup noodle. Is down in deepest, darkest Africa. Africa. Who's the one who brought the jungle fame? Who's the king of animals in Africa? Kimba the white lion is his name. When we get in trouble and we're in a fight, who's the one who just won't turn and run? 